Good morning, church. Oh, I'm so glad to be here with you. If we have not met, my name is David Hunziker. I get the privilege of being the campus minister at the West Murfreesboro campus. I'm standing in today for David Young, who sends you his love. You know he wishes he could be here with you. He's been preparing for this series entitled Legion, Living in a World of Angels, Demons, and All Things Spiritual. He's been preparing it for a while. But uh, last week, he had adverse effects to his immunotherapy treatment. And then again... For the third time this year, he's now battling COVID and is not able to be with us um, physically. David, we send you our love. We're honored that you would position the church to be aware of such spiritual things. And so thank you for, for this. Consider this, if you will, a prequel to the series. I'm not, I'm not going to step into David Young's installments. Instead, let's just begin to th- this discussion today. Let's talk about spiritual realities. And let's make sure before we leave that we're in the very best position we can be in for the spiritual war that we find ourselves in. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I want you to know that I am secure in my own skin. I'm a confident dude. And, and that genuinely, I'm so sorry it's me this morning. We've been so eager for David Young to run with this sermon series. But God is with us. Amen. And we're going to have a good Sunday. And there's lots for us to learn together and, and many things for us to discover. All right. Let's take us back in time. On this very day, 21 years ago, Americans witnessed some of history's most tragic scenes with the attacks of 9-11. Now, the next thing I'm going to do is show some of those images. I have not selected the most graphic of the images, but if you need to look away, that makes sense to me, and I I would understand it. The first image that many of us caught on the television screen was after the fact that one plane had already crashed into a World Trade Center, and we caught up to speed that yet a second was coming for the other World Trade Center. And quickly, I believe, we realized that we were under attack. The World Trade Centers were not the only structure attacked. The Pentagon was also attacked, as well as supposedly the Capitol to be attacked, but the heroics of the passengers on United 93 down the plane in a field Our first responders stared at a scene where you would wonder, where in the world should we even begin? Searching frantically for lost bodies and recovering as much as possibly could be recovered in the tragic events of 9-11-2001. This we became aware of as ground zero in the devastating effects of the lasting damage on our land, but in our hearts, of this attack. Americans had to wrestle with one of the hardest truths we've ever had to wrestle with. And that is that on September 11, 2001, we awoke to the dreadful reality that someone in a foreign land had been scheming against us. A foreign land that many of us were very unfamiliar with. So it was these attacks that led us then to learn language like Al-Qaeda, to learn characters of Osama bin Laden, to learn what terrorism is and what it means for someone to be radical or what it looks like when that is brought out to its fullest extremes. The anxiety was so prevalent, the nation crawled with fear and anxiety, mainly around the question, what do we do to prevent this from happening again? In just 68 days, we were given our answer. In 68 days, it took for the establishment of the TSA. And the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, was born for the express express reason of standing guard so that we would never again be caught unaware. 
And now when you travel over the last 21 years, you show up a little earlier to the airport, you expect to be greeted by the friendliest faces you um, will ever see. And you know that your bags will need to be scanned and random pat-downs will happen as they stand guard. Now, this lady, for instance, well, she either knew a picture was coming or she came out of the womb ready to check your bags. One of the two. But she stands there vigilant to make sure nothing passes her by because she has the story ingrained in her mind. That just 68 days after the attack on September 11, 2001, this administration was established and it's her sworn duty to make sure it does not happen again. So as annoying as they may be, and as slow as transportation now might be in light of the long lines at TSA, this is her role and it matters to her. You don't have to read much about physical war. I've read a few war books and seen a few war movies to understand the significance of intelligence, the significance of awareness in a physical war. Well, the same is true for us in a spiritual war. So I want to welcome you to this series called Legion, where we will learn things about a foreign land, language that for many of us is unfamiliar, characters of Satan and devils and demons, of angels and cherubs and seraphs that maybe we're just generally unfamiliar with, but that we need to now know. So that like the TSA, we can be ready. We can be aware. Our anchor text is Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll touch base with Ephesians chapter 6 throughout the series. I'll start with just a short reading of Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. Before I read it, I do want you to know something about Ephesians. Ephesians was written as a general letter. So it's not written to address a specific congregation's unique um, needs. It's written so that everyone who's a believer in Jesus would learn basic gospel truths. So therefore, when Paul writes about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, he's writing about the situation you find yourself in. This is a widely circulated letter for the very purpose of everyone under the name of Christ to be prepared for the day that we're in now and the days ahead. So here's our anchor text, Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. Read it with me, but not out loud. But please do follow along with these words. Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Here is one of the most unsettling realities that you'll ever learn. There is a being in a foreign land who is scheming against you. I can tell you it's not so or we could try to ignore it. But how would that prepare you for the fact that there is a being in a foreign land who, whether you like it or not, is scheming against you. Scheming destruction, scheming a way of thwarting your plans, interrupting your life in a devastating way. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 doubles down on this, but in one of the most unique contexts. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 is the next verse I want to I put your attention to, where Paul says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now that verse picks up in the middle of a thought. So let me give you some context. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is helping the Corinthian church deal with the problem. The problem harkens back to 1 Corinthians where we find out in the church there's a man who's committed the egregious sin of incest. He's had sexual relations with his father's wife. The church has had to have Paul navigate the situation with them. 
by the time we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, at least I believe it is on the same line of thought concerning this man. That Paul says, I've forgiven him, you have, we've seen repentance in him. Let's work out this problem now and get it all the way sorted out. But to the untrained eye, it would look like there's a group of people who are working on a problem with a specific man. And that's all that's happening. And Paul makes sure to drop this truth right into that context that that's not at all what it is. We're never just a group of people trying to work out a problem. At all times, we are surrounded by spiritual realities. And as we work out our issues, Satan is tempting to outwit us. So we must not be found unaware of his schemes. That's the first truth to grasp before we go any further into the series. And that is, it's never just us. It's never just us. So whatever it is you were discussing in the pews in your 15 seconds there that Sean gave you, it was not just you and that person you were talking to. Take this home with you. It's not just you working to the bottom of a problem with your spouse. There's a spiritual reality always at play, and there is a spiritual enemy trying to outwit us. And so the word Paul uses is awareness. We must not be found unaware of his schemes. Peter doubles down on it and says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Your enemy, the devil, or Satan, in this series... Not at all today. I won't get into everything today. But in this series, we'll explore who he is, where he came from, more of his origin story. For today, however, I want to talk a little bit more about these schemes. As we posture ourselves like this TSA officer. Aware. This is the key point that we need to master before we go further. And that is this. Awareness is key for spiritual victory. Awareness is key for spiritual victory. Right? Not trying to take on too much today, but let's get this in our minds. Awareness is key. So again, hence the series so that you can be aware. Now, when you ask yourself, well, what exactly do I need to be aware of? Well, I'm going to turn to an outline preached in 1739, a sermon preached by this man, George Whitfield. He was in um, Great St. Helens of London when he preached a sermon entitled Satan's Devices. Now, why am I turning to this outline? For a few reasons. First of all, 1739, Satan's devices will not be different from 2022, Satan's devices. So there's something refreshing about seeing, well, hundreds of years ago, here was an outline where we saw what Satan was up to, and it's the same now, and you can actually prepare your grandchildren because it's going to be the same in another few hundred dozen years, right? The other thing I want to do is learn how to do this sideways glance, because I think it's going to help me in my parenting if I could... So uh, George Whitfield is a, is a Calvinist. I'm not interested in becoming one, but I do want to learn about Satan's devices, and I'm trying to master that right there. So uh, before we go further into exploring the devices of Satan from this sermon outline, I'll give you some wisdom from C.S. Lewis who says, before you begin exploring anything about the demonic realm or the kingdom of darkness or about Satan himself, there are two ditches you have to avoid. Here are the two ditches. The first C.S. Lewis describes is this ditch of disbelief. And being Americans, this one will be really easy to do. The ditch of disbelief is to say, I've never seen a devil. 
Uh, I, I've seen only cartoon figures of a man in red tights with a pitchfork, and I just, I just don't believe it. I, I have come to believe that most of what happens is in the natural realm. It's physical. It could possibly be just chemical, but nothing really beyond that, because this is an empirical world in which we live. And so the ditch of disbelief is a very a real ditch we have to avoid. If you find yourself in this, just understand you're setting yourself up for destruction. Simply because we don't believe it doesn't mean it's not real. Or because we haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not real. The other ditch to watch out for is this one of excessive interest. That would be to say, ooh, a sermon series that includes demons. Let's talk about that, you know. And you begin to give too much of your mind to the preoccupation of Satan. So we cannot walk around believing he's behind every bush. Or that just because of the drama of it, we should explore things concerning the demonic. Or, you know, now that I've piqued your interest, let's go home and watch some horror movie about what the real demonic realm is like and so on and so forth. Let's not give Satan too much of our mind, neither shall we give him too little. The road in which we wish to walk in the series is this road of awareness. That is the word that Paul uses. That's the word Paul uses. To never again be caught unaware. Awareness it is, is the key for spiritual victory. Now I think we're poised to get into these six schemes. I'll talk about each of them and offer a few uh, words on each as we go through it. Number one, here uh, is the first of the six schemes of Satan. And I don't know if Whitfield put this one on top on purpose, but I believe it's a very good starting place. And that is Satan drives us to despair. Satan drives us to despair. It's a scheme of Satan's. Despair is the sinking feeling that all hope is lost, that all personal hope is lost. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's just the fact that you believe everything that was good is now past in the world and the days that are to come will not be as good as the days that were past. In 2018, I had one of the most disorienting days of my life. It was June of 2018, and like some of you, I found myself reading a published article by the CDC. I wonder if you read this article. It was entitled, Death by Despair. In the article, the CDC published research from 1999 to 2016 where they calculated an increase in suicide rates in our nation to the tune of upwards of 30% nationwide. The way this picture is laid out, the darker the state, the higher the increase in suicide rate. All but one have seen a significant increase in the last decade. This, what we're looking at right here, is the handiwork of Satan. We know that Satan uses the device of despair to open your heart up so that he can work on you in more ways than you've ever anticipated. Satan will say uh, to you, you're too marred by sin to receive the mercy of Christ. This is the despair that George Whitfield centered on when he was preaching in 1739. In every group, there's somebody near you who's hearing that from Satan. You're too vile a sinner to be forgiven by Jesus. All despair is lost. I mean, all hope is lost. He might have, have whispered this to you, you're no good at your job, or you've wasted your life, or the glory days have passed, or you are not worth loving because your family of origin certainly sent you this message, and now you could never get past it or move beyond this message. These messages, to some of you, or maybe I should say the counter to these messages to some of us, sounds a little bit like emotional fluff, like I understand that there's somebody who, who might be sad and, and maybe we need to boost them up, but it can seem a little fluffy. And what I want to express to you is that, first of all, God is very concerned about your emotional state. You are an emotional creature. God is concerned about it. 
And so even if to you it thinks, well, this is fluffy Christianity, I, I will tell you it's really not because the emotional state of the person sitting beside you is a much bigger deal than we've ever imagined. But I will also tell you that despair isn't just emotional. It's deeply spiritual. And this is where Satan comes in. Uh, it was Soren Kierkegaard who, who wrote in his work, This Sickness Shall Not lead in, uh, End in Death. He wrote this argument about despair. He said, despair is Satan's tool for knocking you out of spiritual alignment with God. For knocking you out of alignment. That is to say that you lose touch with your source, who is the God of hope. That's how Paul describes him. He's the God of hope who will fill you with peace and with joy until you are overflowing with hope. So wherever despair is active in your life, you have officially been knocked out of alignment with God. You can no longer process his messages and you're not walking in step with his will for your life. That's why we have to be aware of despair like that TSA guard and keep it out of our life. The first one driving us to despair. The second, Satan tempts us to be proud. He tempts us to be proud. Now, why does he tempt us to be proud? Well, the scriptures are very clear. Pride is the shortest path from where you are now to your destruction. Pride is that quickest path. It'll get you there fast. Now, if, um, if you're a history buff, one thing you've already learned is that you can take any story in history, find where it resulted in destruction, and then walk your way backwards, and you'll, you'll see a thread of pride in the story. Any story you want. Find where it ends in destruction, work your way backwards, and you'll see a thread of pride. Let me just tell you one of them. January 28, 1986. This is Challenger. And as soon as I'm starting the story, I want to apologize. I don't mean to bring up all of our national trauma today. I promise I, I won't mention anything of, of Pearl Harbor. But this is, this is Challenger 32. It's January 28, 1986. The launch of this um, space shuttle has already been delayed several times leading into this date, January 28, 1986. On the shuttle is this crew, a seven-passenger crew, including Krista McAuliffe. She's buried in the hearts of the American people. She's a teacher. You know her class is eager to see her fly to outer space. But on the morning of, NASA was seeking signatures from the key engineers of this um, space shuttle. One of those is Alan McDonald. Alan protested. And he put his job on the line, but he said, I will not sign off on the flight because of the temperature. Right now it's well below our tested temperatures for this space shuttle. The O-rings Alan feared would not hold up because of the freezing temperatures overnight in the cooler temperatures of the morning. So he put his job on the line, but he put his priorities in order, and he said, I refuse to sign this and to launch this rocket. He was superseded, and his supervisor signed instead. And 78 seconds into the flight, Challenger exploded. Now, why did his boss sign the line? Well, Alan was very straightforward with it. When he wrote on this event in his book, he straight up documented that it was arrogance that led NASA to launch this Challenger. So, that at some point, a decision will be in front of you. You'll feel the tension of it. But you'll be tempted to sign anyway because of the watching crowds, because your name is on the line, because we don't want to delay this any more than we already have, and so on and so forth. David found himself like this. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, we're going to get a little hint into how Satan works pride in your life. Let me show you this one verse. Satan rose up against Israel 
and incited David to take a census. Now, this word incited is a very important word. If you read other versions, you'll see it's recorded in the King James as provoked David to take a census. Or the American Standard Version will say he moved David to take a census. Here's one that spells it out for you, the contemporary English version. He made David think it was a good idea to take a census of Israel. What's happening here? Well, what's happening is that Satan himself is not planting the seed of pride. The seed of pride is already planted in you. Satan finds it, he waters it, and he brings fruit out of it with the most seductive talk you could ever imagine. David, I believe he said, other kings are taking census of their people. This will look good on you. It'll be a confidence boost for you. It'll be a self-esteem boost for you because you'll know how many fighting men you have under your watch. The truth is, they were not under David's authority, but under God's authority, and he was not authorized to, to take the census. But nonetheless, he was seduced into taking the census. That is to say, for a momentary lapse of lacking awareness, David listened to the voice on his shoulder that said, go ahead and do it for the building up of yourself. Now, it's these kind of verses that lead to the creation of these kind of cartoon depictions of what happened. Here's David, and there's a voice that he does not follow. It's not his guide. This voice has, has really not directed his path in life. But on this day, he listens to it. And he does something for his own benefit. Now, one other thing we learn about Satan is that David did not end the chapter by saying to God, the devil made me do it. Matter of fact, the chapter ends quite the opposite. David says at the end of the punishment, I, the shepherd, am the one who sinned. Which means, no, Satan is not the one who is ultimately responsible for the things that have gone wrong in your life. You made decisions. But the way it works is we trace the way he's seducing us. We put him at bay so that then you can make the right decision the next time. But we take full ownership of the things that have happened in our lives. Now, this is why awareness is key for spiritual victory because he's whispering things in your ear just as he whispered things in David's very seductive things. The third thing is that he tempts us to doubt God when it seems our prayers are unanswered. I imagine everybody in the room has experienced this or is currently experiencing this. I'll tell you of my first time, but instead of telling you of it, I'm going to remind you, if, if you've been here for a while, I, I've already told this story, but it fits here really well. So as an eight-year-old child, I went to this house off of Pepper Branch in McMinnville, Tennessee, to visit with my granny and papa very regularly. I think I've told you before how much I love my granny. Wonderful granny. Behind the house was a creek, and again, we would wade in the creek and play with the dogs, and she taught me to cross-stitch, and she's the one that I mentioned when I mentioned sun drop and these, these things. One day we were playing with Granny, me and my two brothers. We were throwing a Nerf ball with her. And my older brother threw a Nerf ball too high, and it sailed on Granny. She couldn't catch it. It hit right here on her forehead, hit her hairline, and knocked her hair right off of her head. <laughs> now, my parents had not told us she was wearing a wig, so we screamed bloody murder. <laughs> and we screamed, you broke Granny, you, bro you, you broke her. And... I'm utterly terrified. Well, she quickly puts her wig back on. She calms us down. She tries so hard. She says, it's me. It's granny. It's, you know, this is still me. It's still me. What does that have to do with prayer? That launched, 
that launched a season of very earnest prayer for me and my brothers. We had to learn hard things about ovarian cancer and about chemo and about why, why Granny's hair could be right, knocked right off of her head. Um, and we began to earnestly pray. I prayed very earnestly, very, very sincerely, only for a few months after the fact to be putting a rose on her burial site and to be very, very perplexed as a young boy. What happened? We were praying. Well, everybody has a moment or a season like this where you'll find yourself perplexed. And this is what happens in our mind. There was what I was asking, what I was expecting, and then there was the way that God moved. And this gap is difficult to navigate. But this is the gap that Satan would love to speak to. He would love to speak to this gap. He has ideas for why it went the way it went, and he wants to tell you those ideas. Paul, you need to know, face this gap. Paul faced the gap. It's told to us that there was something tormenting Paul, a thorn in the flesh. It brought him a sense of weakness, a crippling feeling in his life. Now, some scholars believe it was physical blindness. There's good reason to believe that that was the case. Others have pinned this as something else. We don't exactly know. But what we do know was that Paul saw it as a form of weakness in his life. It was troubling him. He even uses the word tormenting him. Three times he pleaded with the Lord to take it away. I believe this number three is used in the biblical sense. That means a complete number of times. You know, with persistence, I, pre I pleaded with God to take it away. But, this is a big but in the Bible. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now Paul has to face a gap. His desire and expectation in the way God is moving. What he does in the next line is he fills the gap with the true message. He, he, does, he doesn't give Satan a reason or room to plant any doubt. This is what he says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is Paul's way of saying, okay, God, if you didn't take it away, and I know you are a God to be trusted and a God who loves me, then what I will assume is positive intent about you. What I know is that if you're not going to take away my weakness, you will show off your power in the face of it so that you will be glorified and so that I will overcome. This is the way that Paul does not allow room for Satan to plant seeds of doubt in his mind. It's a, it's a faithful response. Now, it's hard to respond that way. But this will help you respond that way. The story of your Bible is written that the plot line develops after prayer. Let me, let me put it to you this way. One of the big stories in the Bible is the Exodus story where Israel is released from bondage. Do you know what precipitated the story? God says it's because of the prayers of my people. Peter was released from prison to go on and to make disciples. And what precipitated that? God says it's the prayers of the faithful disciples. Samuel was born to Hannah because of her faithful prayers. Later, Zechariah and Elizabeth were aged, but John the Baptist was born to them to advance the plot line of the Bible because of their prayers. The Assyrians were defeated, a massive army that would not have been defeated otherwise, but it was defeated because of prayers. Demons were driven out, Jesus said, by prayer. And the Spirit was poured out to inaugurate the church age because of the faithful prayers of the apostles. That's to say this, if you didn't follow this. All of the plot line in the Bible is developed in response to the faithful prayers of God's people so that you could learn this important truth about God, God responds to prayer. Satan does not want you to believe so, but you know better. 
the other scheme of Satan, number four, troubling the believer with blasphemous, unbelieving, impure thoughts. Blasphemous is not a word we use often. This is to say a disrespectful or slanderous thought of God. Unbelieving has its root in doubts. Could be that you, you for a moment, just doubt his presence in your life. Impure means something that is selfish, sexually impure, sexually inappropriate. These kind of thoughts will come to your mind. Now, I wanted to underscore the word thoughts because this is very important as we get into a series on spiritual warfare. The battleground for most of the spiritual warfare is the battleground of the mind. The mind is where the battle will take place. That isn't to say that it originates in the mind. For if I were to say that, you would believe, well, then we've just made this up. And what we're really dealing with is some kind of a a mental or emotional turmoil. No. The battle is for the mind. And it enters the battleground of the mind from the spiritual realities that surround us. Which means, going back to our favorite TSA officer, that you are to be spiritually alert as though the thing that's behind you that needs to be protected is your mind. Now, what you can control and cannot control. She cannot control the fact that there might be some passenger with ill intent who comes up with a, with a weapon. She cannot control that. Which means also, you can't control the fact that there will be occasions where Satan will throw a fiery dart at you and you say, I don't know where that thought came from. I've never had that thought before, but there it was. What she can control is that it doesn't go past her and make its home in her mind. Or that's, I'm spiritualizing this already, that's what you can control. That it does not go past and then therefore take root in my mind. I don't have to continually think it. I don't have to let it aboard to carry on with me the rest of my life. Paul says for spiritual battle, you need to know this, that we have to learn to take captive all of our thoughts and submit them in obedience to Jesus Christ. Number five... Satan breaks all rules of warfare. He does not battle by the rules. He will tempt you by carnal friends and relatives. Carnal means worldly, fleshly, unspiritual friends and relatives. When I say he does not abide by the rules, this is what I mean. Job, in his deep despair, had his very wife come to him and say, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? Now, have you ever pondered the fact That it was Job's wife who said that. A voice that he had learned to trust and to lean into. His journey partner, his soulmate, whatever you want to call it. His wife said it to him. Come on, Job, just curse God and die. Or, now Jesus did not have a wife, but he had best friend. Peter, James, and John were in that inner circle of Jesus' best friend. And on one occasion... Peter says to Jesus, no, you're not going to go to the cross and we're not going to carry on with this whole you be betrayed by men and handed over to die. Jesus looks at his best friend, Peter, and he says, Peter, my best friend, get behind me, Satan. You, You are stumbling block to me right now. You don't have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you are my very best friend, but even you do not have the right to tell me whether or not I obey God today. Oh, that's some strong spiritual war. Why does Satan do this? Well, he's clever, man. He breaks all the rules of war. Satan is so clever, he knows that some of you will not trust his voice. So on occasion, he will use a voice you already trust to send you a message that he wants you to have. 
Mm. It's a very hard reality. Which means our awareness needs to go from whatever you currently are, a one, a five, a seven, and it needs to start to climb to that eight, nine, and ten. Because it'll be the voices that you've already learned to trust who will convince you to follow a, an agenda, some worldview, some new way of thinking about the scriptures that will compromise your faith. We have to be vigilant and very careful. Number six, the last of the six schemes that Whitfield mentions is not tempting us at all in order to surprise us when we least expect it. Now, where does Whitfield get this idea? After the showdown in the wilderness where Jesus tries to tempt, to, where Satan tries to tempt Jesus multiple times, we read this. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus for a more opportune time. Another verse that's really significant in your battle against Satan, and that is, he's hoping that someday real soon, you'll wake up without any thought of spiritual warfare. That someday really soon, you'll turn on a device and you'll begin mindlessly scrolling without any thought of spiritual warfare. Someday really soon, you'll enter a tense conversation with your spouse without even one thought of spiritual warfare. That is an opportune time. And that's what he's looking for. It's for this reason, and I'll give you a lengthy quote from Whitfield. It's for this reason that George Whitfield said this in the 1700s. Oh, Christian, carefully watch over your heart. And whenever you perceive yourself to be falling into a spiritual slumber, say to it as Christ said to his disciples, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Awake. Awake, put on strength, watch and pray. Is this life a time to lie down in slumber? Is this life a time to lie down in slumber? Wake up, call upon your God. Your spiritual enemy is not dead, but lurks in some secret place seeking a convenient opportunity on how he may betray you. And this, the last line, if you don't think it's important to guard yourself against the devil, then you will cease being a friend of God. You will cease to walk down the narrow road that leads to eternal life. Awareness is key for spiritual victory. And today our awareness, I pray, has been increased. If you were to do the wrong thing, an unwise thing, so don't do it, and you were to ask Satan to cast a vision for your life, it would look like this. Everything that you've worked hard to build up would be torn down. The relationships that you've cultivated would be lost. The sense of purpose missing. Fear and anxiety would riddle your presence. And um, in the end, we would be back to ground zero. God has a different vision. And it starts with this. With you standing guard with an increased awareness so that things don't slip past you like maybe they have before. This is where this begins. And it's the posture I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we'll all take as we get further into the series about spiritual warfare. Now, how can we, despite the fact that she might bother us when we're trying to fly, how can we learn from this woman? Let me give you four quick things as we wrap up. Number one, pray to God to reveal the schemes of Satan in your life. This lady is well equipped with a scanning device that can x-ray and see things that might try to slip past her. Well, so are you. 
This is where you begin to pray and you say, God, you have eyes to see what maybe I'm not seeing right now. Will you show me on some kind of radar where things are beginning to slip past me? Pray. Now, if you're really brave after you pray, I can tell you somebody else you could ask who will know the things that are slipping past you. Your spouse. (laughs) But you have to be very brave before you do that. Or your best friend. Or your life group leader. Number two, share your discoveries with a small group. Now, why do I say that? Pretend for just a minute that you are the enemy of the person who's beside you. You're not. But if you were, wouldn't you hope they would fight this battle alone? It'd be a lot easier to take them down if they were alone. So number two, share your discoveries with a small group, people that you trust. Number three, and this gets increasingly more difficult, be vigilant. It's time for us to begin red flagging things that Satan is slipping past us. It's time for us to begin noticing his patterns in our life. There's a time and a place where he's going to show up that you can begin to discover. There's a certain recurring thought that needs to be flagged. And it keeps trying to make its way on that conveyor belt of your TSA checkpoint. And it's time to really begin to flag things. This is where, as you enter spiritual warfare, you might consider a spiritual warfare journal. Here are patterns I'm seeing. Here are recurring thoughts. Here's pride in how it shows up in my life. And then number four, even more so increasingly difficult, behind every scheme is a lie. Identify the lie and replace it with the truth. Satan is the father of lies. It's the only language he knows how to speak. So we flag something. We say, why is that here? What lie is this? And then what's the counter truth? I have two verses for you. I'm eager to read. Before I do, let me just say this. If we Christians are to stand firm, we must engage the world of spirits who govern the everyday world of our physical experiences. We must learn to see the world of angels and demons, of Satan and of the Holy Spirit, of time and eternity, of powers and authorities, of darkness and light. We've only just begun in the series. Many questions. Where did Satan come from and why does he roam the earth? What are demons? Principalities and powers. What's it mean when we read of angel armies? And what will come in the end? Armageddon in a great spiritual battle that Revelation reveals to us. What are these things? Maybe it's a foreign land now. But by the end of the series, I pray it's not so foreign. And I pray that instead your awareness is increased. Would you guys stand? Two more verses and we'll wrap up. These, I would love for you to read out loud with me and for you to read them for the benefit of the person beside you, behind you, in front of you as we go further into the series. You ready? Here we go. Read this one out loud with me. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then one of the great promises of Scripture is what we're going to read next. It's how Paul closes Romans. I don't care where you are. Online community, you read too. Everybody read this with me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Let's sing out.